coming up next on the Wetfly Swing podcast. The business which I started uh, uh, many, many years ago, which I sold out of um, in 2012, um, we actually did all the pioneering of the outer islands and destinations. And that business came to abrupt halt when we actually had one of our boats taken by pirates. But they took the boat and they took the crew of eight um, and they took them and they had the crew for 79, 79 days in Somalia. And they, they eventually burnt the ship and uh, they closed our business. That was Keith Rosinus with his first pirate story. Heading back to the Seychelles today on the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how are you doing today? Thanks for stopping by the show. If you've been enjoying this podcast and want to show your support, one way to do that is to click over to any of our sponsors' websites and check in with them there. And one of those sponsors is Fishhound Expeditions. Fishhound puts together remote Alaskan float trips to get you in the middle of Alaska to get the full experience. This is that experience you've been dreaming about, mousing for trout, stripping for coho, char, etc., etc. It's the way to do it in remote Alaska on a river trip. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash fishhound to find out more. That's F-I-S-H. H-O-U-N-D. We are also sponsored by Lake Lady Rods, building distinctive custom rods, each created one at a time to the exact specifications for each angler. I just got back from a Stillwater trip to Kamloops and had the four weight out with a sinking line using that uh, clear camo. The thing was casting like a dream. This thing uh, is really nice. I can't even explain how Chris does it, but it's very unique and, uh, and very nice to cast. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash lakelady right now, L-A-K-E-L-A-D-Y, to support this podcast and a great rod builder. Keith Rose Innes shares his story of fishing some of the greatest destinations around the world. We find out how it all got started out of South Africa and how he stepped up to build a guiding business around one of the most sought-after destinations around the world. I know you're going to enjoy this one, so this one has a little tips, a little tricks, and a decent amount of history, including uh, the connection of uh, Keith and I uh, with the last name. I think we might actually have some uh, family connection, so stay tuned for that one. So without further ado, here he is, Keith Rosinus from Alphonse Fishing Company. How's it going, Keith? Oh, good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for uh, taking a little time to put this together. You, uh, yeah, I know you've done a number of these podcasts. I always love to check in on that first, you know, on the podcasting space. We're going to talk a little about that. You've done, do you have any idea how many podcast episodes you've done with other shows? No idea because I enjoy them so much. Yeah, <laughs> good, <laughs> good. Well, we're going to try, I'm going to try and keep this interesting and maybe ask you a few questions that you haven't been asked before. So that'll be the goal here. But you've obviously, you know, the Seychelles is a huge uh, name, even for people that maybe will never get there. You hear a lot about it, how amazing it is. So we're going to dig into a little bit on that and talk about some of the species there. Um, but take us back. I know you have your uh, connection to your grandfather and, your, you know, a long history in fly fishing. Just take us back to how you first got into it, and then we'll jump into how Alphonse uh, Fishing got going. Yeah, so, I mean, I've always always fly fished. My grandfather was a, a big fly fisherman and fly tire. So he taught taught me all the the, the traits of, of fly fishing. Um, basically, started uh, fishing in for trout in my younger days uh, at the age of five or six up in in uh, Troutbeck in Rhodesia, and then obviously also in South Africa, um, and Gubu Dam and, and and those kind of areas. Um, 
and then sort of evolved into salt water. You know, obviously we've got a sea here in, in South Africa. We're surrounded by a sea, um, so we 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 it, it, it was in its infant stages of fly fishing in the salt, but we 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 had a go at it. And uh, you know, obviously, you know, as you progress in that that lust for as a youngster for for broader broader places, you know, and and more diverse and wild places, different species sort of led me on to the Seychelles. Now I was very fortunate to get the Seychelles. Um, my father took me there. And and obviously once there you you realize what an amazing place it is. Um but it did take time. There was a light bulb moment when uh, you know, I'd been there and I'd I'd gone back and, and fished other places around the world and realized that, you know, the Seychelles is the place. So yeah, I mean it's a it's a long story. Um, um I hope you guys have got some time and I can I can touch on it when you when you would like me to. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. We'll probably dig into a little more of that as we go. I'm curious on the on the trout fishing. So take us uh, to South Africa. What what does that look like? How is trout fishing there different from say trout? And I'm not sure. Are you talking rainbow trout? Uh, we have rainbows and browns. Um, so there's some stream stream and river areas um, closer to Johannesburg, which is where we are currently now. Um, but obviously, there's also a lot of lakes um, on the higher areas. Drakensberg and, and those kind of areas. Um, obviously, trout, uh, trout are all stocked. You know, they're all stocked to, into South Africa, and uh, they become they become residents here. Um, we get big trout. Um, we've got beautiful big lakes, crystal clear, but we've also got uh, really nice big rivers as well as uh, coming out of the Sutu and those kind of places. Um, I would say that my, my most favorable fishing at the moment for trout would be in the Sutu, which is a a, a country which uh, is surrounded by South Africa. It's a mu- mountain um, kingdom, and uh, yeah, some great fishing out there. I um, mean, those in the, those rivers you also get yellowfish as well. So uh, some rivers you'll you'll be able to catch uh, rainbows, browns, and uh, yellowfish. Uh, there are some great great fisheries here in South Africa. No, that's cool. And I, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the yellowfish. So so the, remind me. Uh, so how do you spell that country that's surrounded by South Africa? Lesotho. L e s o t h o. I think. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Cool. So this is kind of like a natural, sounds like a natural area in the middle of, of South Africa. What, what is that? I know you have a big conservation, you know, that's a big part of what you do. What, what does that look like in actually the mainland of, of South Africa and around, you know, is that a big, um, who's, is, is conservation a topic out there? Yeah, conservation is all around us. Obviously, we've got some amazing game and wildlife. So most your most your conservation is is obviously focused on on animals, um, you know, and and there there needs to be a lot more focus on 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 the rivers and the dams and the and the fish because you know obviously there's a lot of uh, areas um, or rivers running through informal settlements. Um, South Africa has obviously had a lot of mining in the past, very 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 rich in gold and, mm. and also some minerals. So a lot of those rivers have been polluted to the extent where there's no more fish in them. So. I don't know if uh, if we will ever get to a stage of rehabilitation on some of the rivers, but I do know down in the in the um, Natal area, which is um, um, a coastal area, there's some um, stuff happening on the rivers. So hopefully we'll be able to highlight the fact that you know a lot of these rivers can be rehabilitated and we can focus on them. But uh, yeah, I'm, at the moment I'm focusing all my all my effort on on the Seychelles. You know we have all our operations there. Um, all the islands are. Um, exclusive in a sense where there's only one lodge or hotel on each one of the outer islands. So we have the ability to form foundations and and sort of conservation arms with, with conservationists and do all the uh, monitoring and, and conservation programs 
through fundraising and so so forth. So um, you're a lot easier there. Um, whereas here, in, in, in obviously in South Africa, a river flows through many different townships and and in, in formal areas and cities and, and and towns, and it's very hard to sort of you know um, you know obviously uh, create a, a positive impact on those kind of rivers. But there is hope for the future, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, I got you. So you're. You, you're in the Seychelles, and you've been there, like, what now? How long have you been in the Seychelles, uh, basically, uh, working, guiding out there? So I've been uh, going to the Seychelles uh, for about 25 years. I think I've been guiding there for about uh, um, around uh, over 23 years. Um, I, did, I did 17 years straight where I did Seychelles, um, uh, either Russia or African destinations, guiding back-to-back seasons. Um, and then I hung up my hung up my boots, and uh, um, unfortunately, I had to uh, anchor myself in my office and 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 start building a business for the future. Um, so most of my time is spent in the office now, unfortunately. But I do fish out a lot. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Well, describe the Seychelles really quick, just for you know, you hear a lot about it, you see photos, pictures, stuff like that. But what makes it so special compared to maybe some other uh, saltwater experiences? Yeah, so a lot of people sort of get confused with you know. Seychelles in the sense where, you know, they're granitic islands, where, you know, the inner islands are all granitic. So they have large mountains, big black mountains, uh, granitic mountains that, that come out of the sea kind of thing. Um, whereas when you move away from the main islands where we, where our destinations start, our closest one being about an hour in, 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 a, in a plane, um, it, it is coral atolls. So it's very different to um, other places around the world. So, you know, many millions of years ago, there was a, there would have been a, a volcano, and obviously the the matter of the volcano is heavier than the sea the sea matter, and slowly it would have sunk into the, the seabed. But as it was sinking in the seabed, and the tip of the volcano um, sort of submerged, the coral would keep growing towards the, the sun, and uh, you'd get uh, the coral would grow up, grow up, grow up, and then obviously you'd get deposits from the currents that would form on top of that that coral. And that will create the atolls. So a lot of these, a lot of these places have got lagoons. Some of them don't have lagoons where half the atoll has fallen away and it's just sort of a sort of a half moon shaped, uh, um, half moon shaped island um, or atoll. Um, whereas uh, um, a lot of them have got enclosed lagoons. And the beauty about them is that you know on each one of these sort of atolls, you know, you can have numerous islands. Uh, for instance, you know, Alphonse, Alphonse, uh, the Alphonse group of of atolls. There was, there was three atolls very close to each other. You know, they they, they have basically have a one-mile channel between them kind of thing, you know. So you, from Alphonse, it's the only atoll which we have a, we have a hotel on and a fishing operation. And we can run – we run from there to St. Francois, which takes us about uh, 25 minutes in, in, in a fast boat. Or actually, 15 minutes in a fast boat and 25 minutes in a slow boat. And you're fishing an atoll which has never been inhabited. And right next to it is another atoll. So you have all these amazing experiences. For instance, Cosmolito um, is an atoll and has uh, about 20 islands, 20 small islands. So you have this one atoll where we've got an eco lodge on the point of the uh, of the main island, and then we go out and fish all the, all these other areas in the in the lagoon, you know, uh, um, 30 kilometers across the lagoon, fishing beautiful islands which you know, have never seen humans uh, or never had humans uh, inhabit them, and uh, really wild and beautiful. Wow. Wow. So the, so the, the atoll is essentially a, uh, historically it was a volcano that collapsed that created that. Is, is that correct? That's, that's correct. John, they, they're, they're actually, they're labeled, uh, coral atolls. 
Coral. Yeah, so it's coral. So the life is, and that's what makes them so diverse. That's why they're known as, even that area might be known as the most diverse uh, aquatic area maybe on the planet, something like that. So there was the uh, there was a, a survey done with, uh, it's called the Norton, Norton uh, survey, which was done with a ship which had two, uh, or Nexon, something like that, something along those lines, had two submarines, and they actually declared it uh, a stove cosmeter area as the most marine diverse um, area in the world. There you go. So it is, and yeah. you see it. What when you're out there, and I guess part of that is the, is the obviously the fly fishing, which we're going to talk about today. But you must just see numerous species of plants, animals, birds. It's just kind of like you know, it's is it pretty amazing? Well, I mean, the thing is that you know, you in the early days it was always by chasing fish. And you know about catching as many fish as you can, kind of thing for yourself and for the clients. You know, in old days, in old days when I first came out, I, I fished, and then you know, on you know, obviously evolved into the guiding side of things. But you know, when you used to come out to these places, you always walked on the flats and you saw these amazing things and encounters: birds, sharks, turtles, uh, um, um, all sorts of animals and, and fish. And you always thought, you know what? Geez, I mean, I wonder if uh, I wonder if. Uh, uh, ecotourism oriented person or a leisure person would enjoy it. So, no, over the years, it's kind of evolved from from just being a, a fishing oriented, fly fishing oriented business to a business which has actually grown and we ha- we actually bring more people to the Seychelles to do ecotourism and, and, and oh, leisure oriented wow. stuff than we do do fly fishing. And and the beauty about that is that by being able to do that is you take the you take the focus away from um, putting too much you you put the focus on pretty much pressure on the flats and and the fisheries and you're able to rest them uh, by creating um, revenue on the other side. That's amazing. Yeah, that is a cool, that's kind of how, you know, business should work, right? You've evolved it from the start of focus. So when you started, you were really focused all fly fishing and now it's evolved into where now it's fly fishing is even secondary to this, to other just ecotourism. Yeah, I mean, fly fishing is our most important aspect because I love it so much. But we do take we, we've taken our foot off the pedal with regards to trying to reduce the amount of rods that we that we put at each destination and increase the ecotourism, and then that way we you know it's obviously more sustainable for the for the future. Um, we've got a lot of work to do with regards to that kind of you know no, uh, um, um, uh, role. Um, obviously, with the more destinations that we have, we're able to spread the load a lot better. Yeah, that's uh, cool. Well, let's. Uh, as people are here today to, to hear about fish, and I want to hear about it all. So we'll we'll, we'll probably circle back around to some of this other stuff. But let, let's let's dig into the fly fishing a little bit. So, what are you know species wise? What's the big species people are coming? Is there one that people really go up there for, or is it just a, a multiple? Yeah, I think um, you know in, in the beginning, um, a lot of people come to Seychelles either for the mass amount of, of bonefish and the incredible amounts of bonefish that you can catch in some of the destinations uh, all day long. Um, but, but obviously one of the big draw cards is, is, uh, the giant trevally, you know, the, yep. the ferocious giant trevally. Um, yep. but you know, once guy, people come out, they obviously, a lot of people get hooked to them and they want to catch giant trevally all day long kind of thing. And, uh, um, it is because it is addictive, Yeah. but uh, you know, once you get there and, and you see all the other species that uh, around you, you know, you, you know, when you're fishing for the giant trevally, you're often in areas where there's bonefish, so you have big bonefish swimming around. And with you know, obviously swimming amongst the bonefish, you'll often see permit. And then when you go up onto the, the pancake uh, sort of uh, um, coral uh, ridges, um, or we call them pancake flats, um, you obviously the trailing tailing triggerfish. 
and then, and then amongst you know amongst the uh, those areas you in the channels you'll see the milkfish feeding or on the flats you'll see the milkfish feeding so it, it's a it's almost like the guys get drawn out there by catching bonefish or by catching gts but once they're there they get a, they get hooked and all the rest um you know the Indo-Pacific permit is exactly the same as the Atlantic permit. It's uh, it's difficult. Uh, they are difficult. The way they tell it, you stick them in a little fin up in the same way. Um, <laughs> it's it's just it's just an amazing experience, you know. So um, the beauty about the Seychelles is obviously it's the crystal clear water, you know. And if you like wading, you can wade on white white flats, white hard flats. Um, we we don't have flats where you end up sinking up into your thighs you know and you, uh, you're trying to roll around and roll around in your stomach to try and get back the, the skiff kind of thing <laughs> we don't get that so um you know, it really is amazing and, and you know the beauty is that we have everything for everybody you know every, stuff for, for beginners if they you know after catching when you catch bonefish get the eye and catch as many bonefish as possible we have that but then if you want to go and get more technical fish you know like permit and so forth you know you get plenty of shots all the d- different destinations are unique um, some mm-hmm. better for permits, some better for GTs, um, and that's gotcha. that's how we that's how we sell them or try and market them. Gotcha. What is the one if you're to go out there? The one that really gets you fired up now? You know, if you're to go out there and fish for them, if you had to pick one. For me, it's it's difficult because I'm I'm kind of someone who prefers to prefers to walk around and and just catch whatever comes my way and sort of pick the fish and and then sort of you know if it looks like an interesting interesting fish or a bigger fish or a you know, in a, in a difficult situation, whatever, I'll have a go at it. But, you know, uh, over the years, um, we've, we've really worked hard on the Indo-Pacific permit. You know, in the beginning, um, you know, they were they were almost like a, a no-go kind of thing. We just couldn't catch them. And also, I, I think that, you know, the numbers of Indo-Pacific uh, permit, because, you know, in the old days, I mean, they would have been, they would have been netted because they obviously have fish with swimmers rounds on the, on the nets. And, you know, it probably would have been a fish that they, that, that, that people would have eaten um, whereas bonefish, I don't think they would have eaten. So um, I, I don't know if it is if it's just the the seawater temperatures that have changed or what's changed. But uh, the Indo-Pacific permit fishing has definitely, well, numbers have definitely increased. So uh, we've seen a lot, lot more of them. Um, and you know, about what five years ago, we also evolved and, and um, managed to tweak a lot of different different things on on uh, the flexo crab to create the alflexo. Which is a small version, which is really really realistic, and and it's given us an opportunity to really target them because they eat them, they like them. So it's gone from the the fish of a thousand cost to the fish of probably like a hundred cost now. So oh, um, yeah, yeah. So we've got them dialed in, and we're enjoying them. And you know, some destinations in the past you wouldn't even fish them because you would fish, you know, permit all day, and you wouldn't catch one for a month. Um, and now we sort of got them dialed in where we can we catch them. You know, and the one fish one trip is just finished. To Providence, on board our, our catamaran called Cuvadas, and where the where the guests, the American guests, uh, ended on seventeen in the Pacific permit for the week. So uh, we really got it dialed in, and it, it, it's something that you know. And I mean, those guests, uh, they they loved it so much they booked and ready to come back again. So exactly. it's you know it's it's really amazing. There's something unique about staying on a, on a catamaran. Um, oh right, four guests on a catamaran catamaran with with skiffs in tow, or you know, and then. Uh, going on to a series of different islands, you know, and moving around between islands and fishing for Indo-Pacific permit, uh, tailing, uh, on foot, tailing fish, you know. So it's we have got so many different products. I mean, it's it really is it really is an amazing fish fishery. Yeah, yeah, that is cool. 
That sounds amazing. I mean, when you talk about the catamarans, so this is a, and how big, these are, these are big catamarans. How, how many feet, how big are these boats? So the boat which we, we target our Indo-Pacific permit at, in the Amaranthes chain is a 75-footer. Um, and we, we can load our, load our boats on, on board and we can, yeah, it, it, it's got some top end as well. So we can travel like 16 knots. It's really comfortable and, and, and luxurious in a sense. And so the guys really enjoy it. <laughs> that's sweet. So, so you got this luxurious, this, this catamaran that's, that's out there and well, let's just dig into the permit. I'm, this is pretty interesting because you talk about how back in the day you could barely catch them and now you're catching them and you, you said, you know, different patterns, things like that. What is the big difference? If you think back before where you were, it was taking you a thousand casts and now it's a hundred. What is the big difference? Very simple. It's the Alflexo, uh, the creation of this new new fly that we've, we've evolved and, and, and really, really sort of uh, um, focused on, on getting it exactly right. How do you spell that? It's A-L-P-H-O-N-S-E. Yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> Yeah, flexor, flexor, uh, F-L-E-X. Yeah, flexor, yeah, yeah, flex. P-H, though, not F. Oh, oh P-H, yeah, yeah, flexor, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it says fly, so that's that goes against the general rule, and, you know, fly fishing is pretty funny because everybody says lots of different species, you know, the fly isn't as important as the cast and everything, but really with this permit, you're saying fly is the most important thing. Absolutely, without a doubt, and also the way we fish them, so... In the past, you know, you would kind of lay it up and you put a crab pattern out there and you'd, you'd, as it came, came towards it, you would sort of twitch, twitch, twitch. Whereas with this fly, we kind of fish him a lot, lot, lot faster. So you'd, you'd get it to the area where you think he's seen it and you'd move it away from him immediately. So you get him to try and chase it. And once he's, once he's dialed on that fly and he's coming straight back towards you, he can't see the leader. All he can see is that fly. And then we generally, we generally speed up, but then give him a, l- a little bit of time just to eat that fly and then you'll, you'll be on. So yeah, it's 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 you know, it's a combination of everything. So you got the right fly, you got the confidence. Um, if you got the confidence, you can fish them in various different ways. Yeah. And if you got the confidence, you can you can make that fly that that cost count versus trying to overthink it and lay it up too far away, snagging the bottom, snagging the bottom, and so forth. Yeah. So it's it's right. all about the confidence. With permanent, it's about confidence. Yeah, yeah. And do you think the technique you're doing there with that fly and the fast twitch does that work for permit all around the world? Yeah, it's not really a twitch. Eh? It's actually it's actually a, a slow and steady strip. Oh, slow so and steady. So keep keeping yeah. keeping their fly moving away from them. You know, in the past yeah. we used to we used to twitch it, and then, uh, you know, right. uh, thinking that maybe they they, they they think it's a little crab, they'll come after it. But no, they don't want it. There's a little bit of jack in them, so they they yeah. like to so chase. Slow it and steady. Bit. So it's just like a slow, like a long, like kind of just like a long strip, and, and yeah. just keep long strips. And in trying to get it, get back onto the strip as quick as possible, because you know, often within the Pacific permit, you feel a bump. It's too late. He's already eaten it and oh. spit it out. They they yeah. inhale it. They don't eat it. So, oh right. So how do you know when to to do the the set? So generally, when you're stripping those long slow strips, not too slow, hey. So you'll feel a little bit of pressure. If you feel a little bit of pressure, I'll set straight away. Because generally, generally, it'll be inside its inside its throat almost. If you, if, and, and if you feel the bump, it's too late. It's already out. Yeah. Right. Right. This is, this is cool. So, and, uh, talk a little bit about just the, the kind of the line, the fly line you're using in the, in the gear real quick. What, what's that look like? Yeah. So we're using either eight or nine weight rods. Um, now I'm, I'm, I've gone back to eight weight and simply because, uh, you can, you know, when you're fishing an eight weight, the line lands lighter because it's softer yeah. because it's lighter. Um, yeah. and you know, and I, 
I've gone away from nine weight, you know, because in the past, you know, obviously a nine weight was a combination rod where you would fish for triggers and bonefish and and in a Pacific permit with. Now what we, we generally do is we we kind of fish two rods. So we'll have an eight weight with a with a crab for a, a permit, and we'll have a a nine weight if we're going to fish for um, triggers and so forth. So, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's quite important that you don't fish something that's too heavy. Um, you know, also in the past, the guys would fish ten weight uh, lines, but I believe that's too heavy. You know, it lands too hard on on the water. You're already casting a heavy flower or a big crab pattern at them. So try and get as much splash away from them as possible. Um, I fish I fish light leaders. Um, for in the Pacific permit, I'm fishing 15 pound. Um, well, it's not so light, but it's it's light enough. You yeah. know, something that's really small diameter, um, fluorocarbon, long leader, 12 foot if you can, and just straight floating lines. Uh, that's the, that's the way. Just straight floating. You don't need anything simple. And you're in pretty shallow. Like, how deep is the deepest you're fishing? So, if you're going to fish them as really deep, it'll probably be around far height, far depth. That's when that's when the t- the tides pushed in and they're on they're on the uh, um, they're on the apex or around waist deep maximum, um, but generally you're fishing them knee knee and above the knee and that's the perfect height. They're very comfortable in that in that depth of water. Gotcha. And you guys are just from your going back to the catamaran. So you got your your boats. You you pop off. You got the little uh, skiffs or whatever you use, and then you guys head out to a different uh, atoll and then spend the day there. Is that how it works? And then meet back. Or, or are you fishing out of the boat, or you get going on, on shore? Yeah. So we generally um, plan our, our our week or ten days, whatever amount of time the guests are with us, according to the tides. So certain atolls will fish um, on the foster tides in the spring tides. Um, and certain atolls will fish um, on the neap tides. You generally, generally, your spring tide uh, um, destinations, you would be fishing inside a lagoon. So something that has an uh, atoll which has a nice lagoon, and you, you'll you go in on, on, on the high tide, and then obviously as the tide gets lower, you're stuck inside the lagoon if there's no entrance, and then you'll come back out in the high tide again. Those kind of uh, atolls work, work really, really well for um, permanent spring tides. Um, generally, a lot more white sand and so forth. But then – on the neap tides, we 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 uh, target the destinations which are more um, vulcanized, broken vulcanized, cor- coral orientated, like storm ridges and so forth, where those permit are coming up on the flat and they 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 sort of tailing on on the broken coral. It's generally a little more difficult to catch as well, um, and that's on foot. But what we what we often do is, you know, in those kind of places, is we'll we'll get into position to the area with our skiff, and then as it gets uh, very very skinny, we'll let let the skiff run dry. And then we'll go on foot. Whereas, uh, you know, in, uh, on the destination we have the spring tides, we like to keep the boats close to us. So we catch them on the pole, you know, pole poling. But if you if you want to catch them on foot, you can catch them all on foot. It's just a matter of um, poling along, finding a pot of fish or a fish, and you can jump off the skiff and walk up and, and have a go. This episode is sponsored by Trestle with their CRC system. It provides secure, convenient storage for your fully rigged fly rods with unsurpassed gear protection. Every CRC system comes with a secure uh, mounting clamp system, padding in the reel compartment, and their proprietary rod liner suspension system. This is a very uh, a pain point for, as a lot of us, you know, your 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 uh, hook gets stuck in there and you can't get it out. That's definitely a pain. So they figured that one out. And uh, it's all about making it easier and faster to get on the water and having your rod fully rigged, whether you're on the salt water, whether you're in California, Colorado, New York, it doesn't really matter. If you want your rod to be ready to go, the CRC system will do that. Whether on top of your rod, on top of your rig, 
on the side or in the back of your car. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash trestle right now to get started. T-R-X-S-T-L-E. You support this podcast by clicking over through that link to trestle. Okay, back to the show. So good. So I think we got a little bit of a um, a little perspective on it. Uh, give me, we had a few questions here from listeners and, and one was on knots. I'm just curious when you're setting these things up, what, what does that look like for, for your knots? What, what type of knots, you know, give us the, it sounds like it's pretty straightforward, just a long leader, but break that down a little bit. Uh, you, are you talking about for uh, Indo-Pacific permit or are you talking about? Uh... Yeah. Yeah. If we just stick for permit, maybe let's start with permit, just uh, start with permit and then we'll go in general. Yeah, so I mean, permit. We we obviously using uh, your standard floating line. I use Cortland lines, and they've got obviously braided, so they've got uh, welded loops on the end. So it's it's nice and simple. Um, I like to do a twisted leader or a feral leader, whatever you want to call it. So mm. I'll basically take sort of um, a, you know three full ends of of, uh, of of my outstretched arms of fifteen pound. Um, I twist it back on itself to about halfway. And then what I do is I do a perfection, which is uh, it's kind of difficult to do. I haven't seen anyone else do it, uh, where you do a perfection on that uh, twisted end. So you have basically have one long piece of leader. There's only one little knot there, and you obviously loop it into the to the the welded loop. And then on the end, um, I'll put a perfection loop as well. Um, I won't use a perfection loop on anything less than fifteen pound. Uh, I find that it does does break. Um, but, I mean, for, for Indo-Pacific permit, you can use a, a tapered leader. Um, as long as it's got about 15 pound on the tip, the point. Um, some people use uh, um, um, segmented leaders. So, you know, obviously a heavier butt section uh, all the way down to 15 pound. All of it works. Um, and, you know, for permit, it doesn't really make a, a massive difference because generally where you're hooking them, You've got a bit of clearance. They're not going to run into coral. You don't have to put the brakes on. Well, they they can run into coral, but you you have to be unlucky. But you you don't have to put severe brakes on them immediately. You know you've got a little bit of leeway there. Um, so you have got you have got a bit of freedom on on the tippet. But once you start going to all the other species like triggerfish and so forth, you know you have to be, you have to be very careful of what you use. Gotcha, gotcha. So when you go to the yeah the triggers and the GTs, that's a, that's a different setup you're using there. Yeah, well, so so GTs is a very different uh, yeah. model, uh, you know, very different experience in the sense that you know he, he, he's the beast. You know, he he breaks breaks most things. You know, if he doesn't straighten the hook, yeah. you know, he he has a has a go at cutting the fly line. So, um, you know, we've obviously spent a lot of time over the years evolving um, the tackle for giant rally. You know, the difference is that pe- people think that you know you have to pitch a really hard drag for a giant trevally. Yes, you do, but you you can't set it there. You've got to get it to that. So the way we do it is that we have a we have a standard fly line. You know, it must be a saltwater a tropic fly line, must have a proper core. Try and get it over 50 pound core um, at least. Definitely not a mono core. Um, and if you can, I mean try and stay away from sort of um, lines that have got too much texture on them because you know GT is going to when he's when you're clearing he's going to he's going to cut holes in your fingers if you're dragging a, a textured line through your fingers. Oh wow! So it's just you, you want to have a line that's not too slippery on the fingers, not too oily, but not too much texture on it. So you know something with a with a nice nice big head so you can place the fly quite quickly, you know, and close to you because ninety uh, percent of the time you're not catching the giant valley in you know, a full fly line cast away. You catch them short, you know. 
three, four rod lengths maximum. You know, just putting the oh, fly wow. in front of him and, and it's, it's short because they they pair of nowhere. You know, so it's quick and and easy and and, and getting the fly in as quick as possible to an area where he can see it. So we use general, you know, uh, uh, quite bulky heads on 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 the on the on the fly lines. I've started fishing an eleven weight a lot more than a twelve weight. You know, obviously, 11 weights more forgiving uh, on your arm. Um, you know, people who don't fish for giant belly all the time, you know, they'll find it much easier to cast an 11 weight than a 12 weight. You know, um, and it's more important to hook the fish than to land every single one. So, and all the new modern 11, 11 weight rods have all got plenty of backbone. You point that rod at the fish, you're going to land him. Um, obviously, you need a, a really good uh, salt for a reel that has plenty of, of uh, break, break power. Uh, but the most important thing with with the reel is that it, it mustn't have any f- frame flex when the drag is locked up. So oh, yeah. a lot of people go, oh, but you know the drag's great in this thing, but they don't they don't understand that you know once that 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 reel is locked up, you know the the, the frame will flex and you'll get that drag. Yeah. You know that that's kind of uh, you know grinding effect. Um, yeah. So I fish Shilton reels. They they basic, simple. I can fix them with a Leatherman at any stage on the flats. So very very easy for me to me to use and fix and. Um, yeah, and I have been fishing the same reels for you know almost 15 years. So for me, that's that's the way forward. A simple cork drag, just make sure the cork drags um, aren't don't get wet. And if they get wet, you just open the reel up and wipe it on your shirt and um, put it back together again. So yeah, that, that kind of thing. You know, Abel's the, the old Abel's all work really really well. Mako's work really 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 well. Um, yeah, just a really good uh, Nautilus. Um, you know, just a really good saltwater reel. Something that can yeah. got breaks. Uh, with that drill is that you know when you hook the giant rally, you've got to have it set fairly tight, but not not tight enough where he's going to eat and he's going to break you. So, because if you if you think you you're casting to a fish, you're stripping the line in, he's coming, he's enticed, he's looking at you, his eyes are dilated, his mouth's open, his now his mouth's coming above the water edge, you're stripping as fast as he can, he eats the fly. You've got a lot of line around you, so you're gonna. That fish is gonna start taking that line. The line's gonna be going going through your fingers. You're gonna be trying as hold as on as tight as possible, but at some stage that that line is gonna hit the reel. Now, if it hits the reel and your drag's tight, all that's gonna happen is it's gonna be a big explosion. Right. So what, what needs to happen is it needs to get on that uh, reel with a nice, uh, uh, nice sort of steady drag, but not too much. Let that niche sort of start speeding up, and obviously then, uh, you know, let the reel start speeding up. And, and as he starts going, then you tighten him down. Yeah. Generally, uh, giant trevally aren't, they aren't fish that are going to do numerous long runs. You don't really, you don't really break the power, you know, break the spirit. So in a sense, like, it's it's slow pressure and, and sort of applying it in a sense where you get to a stage where you're flipping him. So as he's going away, you're applying, you're applying, you're applying. Knowing where your breaking point is, and then at a, at a stage that GT won't be able to, you won't be able to keep going because you've slowed him down so much, and he'll do a flip. You'll probably do two or three other runs as well, and then he'll generally start looking for structure. That's when you've got to be clever. That's when you've got to try and get as close as possible to him because he's going to look for any piece of coral, any sort uh, of drop off, and he's going to go straight yeah. towards that. And huh. if you can get if you can get close to him, you can omit that kind of that kind of thing. Um, and then then obviously it's just a little bit of a tug of war and until you got him close by you. So, yeah, the, the next important thing, obviously, with, 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 the, with the fly line is, is the, the setup. So we don't use braided loops um, at all, uh, factory, factory loops or braided loops that have been uh, manufactured or made, uh, you know, with, with glue and so forth. We believe in using waxed 
uh, running line, braided running line. So it's it's like a, a Cortland makes a really good one. It's it's waxed um, running line. It used to be called waxed running line. It's fifty pound. You loop it back into itself, so you create a yeah. double a double layer of of the the running line. Um, and then what you do is you feed your fly line about four inches to five inches up inside that uh, um, that braided loop. And then what you do is you use two nail knots um, at the at the back of the loop, the end of the loop, and you cinch it on that way. We don't put glue all over the all over the braided loop. We only put it if you want to put a little bit of glue, you can put it on the nail knots because the reason why a, a braided loop is so good is because when it is um, stretched, it, it applies the grip to the whole part of the fly line that is underneath the braided loop versus just to one area. So what it does is it gives you a lot more flexibility uh, with regards to applying more pressure. And actually, you know, you'll see when you can't, when you've done a braided loop nicely, you'll see that once you've caught a fish in it, it actually seats onto the fly line, creates all those little sort of uh, um, ridges and it, it seats on the fly line and then it's really, really strong. Um, from there, we then go to uh, um, – uh, we fish anything from say 80 pound fluorocarbon to actually 130 pound monofilament. Um, I use once again I use uh, perfection loops. The most important thing with a perfection loop is in mono it does slide, so you need to leave a you know a tag. Uh, it doesn't need to be a long tag, you know, so that it creates twist in the line. It needs to be a tag, so and you need to seat those knots properly. I do the same thing on the other side with 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 a fly. I um, do a, a nine foot leader, you know, make sure those knots are seated properly. So it's, it's two perfection loops either side. And then obviously the, the, the fly is very important that you need to use a hook that's not going to straighten. So I use, you know, the, a, a various Gamagatsu hooks, you know, the Tracoom's uh, 80 um, or 60, I think the SC15 2H um, as well, the top one hook in the fiber, the biggest one that you get. Really, really strong, straight point, you know, really strong hooks don't open up. Uh, there's, there's various other brands that are also really, really good. And then if you go back back on the fly line, uh, back towards the, the, the backing, um, I believe that I, I, the right thing to do, you know, for G, Giant Valley is fish 80-pound braid. Um, I know it, it means that it, it, you lose a lot of uh, capacity on the reel, but you have the ability to survive uh, certain kinds of coral. So I'll put sort of 250 yards of 80-pound uh, braid on the back, um, and then I join that. I do a double – a double. Uh, sorry, I do a bimini, and then I do a double surgeon knot. And then what I do is I join that to a, a, a braided loop on the backing the same way uh, – sorry, braided loop on the back of the fly line the same as the – the other side of the fly line and for me that's the best way for it it's it's pretty bullet, bulletproof that's it that yeah you, you you broke that down amazingly that sounds perfect so and uh so we got that we got the the setup that was awesome and uh, and i love you mentioned the nail knot that's an old school knot that i love as well what's the um you, you mentioned the, the reels what was it uh, what was the shell how do you spell that that reel the first one you mentioned shelton oh shelton yeah S-H-I-L-T-O-N. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah, Perfect. Right. Perfect. And, and what's so the giant chivalry? I'm not sure if you know the. I mean, the the fish itself it just looks so unique and cool, man. It's, right? It's got this giant head compared to say like bonefish. Well, I guess permit they have their own body morphology. But why is why the giant chivalry? Why the giant? Is it just do you know a little bit of that morphology? Why it's such a, a you know a giant head and all, all the? Is it just for seeing and be the predator it is obviously? 
Yeah, I just, I just think, you know, uh, um, I mean, they, they obviously built to eat. So, you know, they, they built in a way that they, they, they need to be very hardy. Um, they do believe that they are the super predators on the flats. So they, they will swim with sharks and, and with rays. And Oh, wow. Really? So they're, the, they're, the top, they're one of the top predators, they're even, even alongside a shark. Yeah, the biggest fish you catch will be on, on a, a 10-foot shark. You know? So it's, uh, um, they feed, you know, you'd have two or three fish sometimes on sharks. Um, and the, the, the strange thing about it is that at different atolls, you get them feeding on different kinds of sharks. Um, so, for instance, on, on, at Alphonse and St. Francois, we get them feeding with nurse sharks, whereas in places like Cosmolito um, and a stove and those kind of places, we don't get them feeding with nurse sharks. They feed with lemon sharks or with uh, tiger sharks, um, guitar sharks, and so forth. So it really varies between the destinations. Um, they love swimming with, with uh, um, thornback rays. You know, you, when you have a thornback ray mm. swimming along, You'll get it. You'll get at least one GT sitting right in the back of that uh, ray, and it's a symbiotic relationship where the ray sort of uh, disturbs the everything on the bottom, and little oh. fish and crabs or whatever will swim away, and he'll dart off and or she will dart off and eat it. So yeah, they do. They do feed in packs. They feed on sharks. They feed on rays. Uh, they are a, they are feeding feeding uh, machines. Um, the beauty about them is that when they see you fly and they want it. You can see immediately. They turn on and you can't strip fast <laughs> enough. You know, they will, oh, really? they will eat it. And, and the reason why they're such a beautiful fish uh, to catch is because, you know, you're fishing them on full floating lines. So you, you, you cast them the fly at them. Uh, and when you, when you're stripping, you know, they fly, it doesn't matter how weighted it is, it's going to come to the surface. So huh. you can imagine a, a giant trevally, you know, a small giant trevally, you know, it's, it's, it's heads probably like a foot, foot. But then you get the, the bigger giant trevally where, you know, they, you're probably getting closer to like, you know, two foot. Um, and wow. so you can imagine that their, their mouth is two is about one and a half feet below, below the eyes. So in order to eat their fly, he's got to stick his eyes out the water and his head out the water. Oh, my God. For that fly to go, be engulfed in his mouth. So it really is a crazy experience. You know, once you, when you're looking down that rod and you're looking straight at that fish because he's coming towards you to eat the fly – you're stripping as fast as you can. He's opening his eyes. They, they dilated. His mouth's open. And, he, and all you got to do now is just pause slightly, just a little bit of a slow, slow strip so you can just eat it, you know? And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, wow. uh, it's exciting. That is amazing. So, and what is the fly you're using for the GTs? Oh, various. So we'll catch them from, from surface uh, poppers, uh, naps, uh, sempers, uh, clouses, Brush flies. There's a lot of different patterns we use. You know, yeah. there's, there's all sorts. Of Not critical. Yeah. No. It, it's all about size and color and, and, and profile, um, and it's also about belief. You know, it's um, I, I'll, I'll fish very different flies to some of the other guys. The flies that are tie on their on their, their guest guest rods and so forth. So it's it's about preference. You know, it's uh, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's an important part. You know, just got to believe in the fly. That's all. Blue fly, nice. Well, I wanted to. I had another question, kind of a random one. I, I heard uh, that your, you mentioned Rose Innes is uh, your your obviously your last name, but Stewart is also uh, you have Stewart right in your family. That's your Scottish part of that. Yeah, so both sides of my family are from Scotland, Stewart and Rose Innes, um, and uh, the Rose Innes family came uh, out to South Africa, you know, with the eighteen twenty settlers. Um, so my father was born in South Africa. My mother's side 
is Stuart. And my, my grandfather my grandfather was born in uh, um, Rhodesia. Sorry, was born in uh, Scotland. And then from there, he, after the Second World War, he moved out to, uh, um, to Rhodesia. And uh, my father went to Rhodesia to fight in the Rhodesian War. And, uh, and my mother was a nurse and my father was, a, hmm. uh, was injured and uh, they met in the hospital. And, uh, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so that, that's the story. And then that's obviously the Rhodesia, Rhodesia fell apart and uh, everybody left. So we came uh, back to South Africa. And, and how do you spell the Stuart? I'm just curious because my last name is Stuart, and I, I I don't know my you know I mean I know it's a Scottish we have some Scottish ancestry. How do you spell your Stuart? S T E W A R T. Yeah, it's spelled the same, so that's how mine's yeah. spelled. So yeah, so maybe yeah. we might even have a who knows, right? We might have some uh, some relative uh, connection there. Who knows? We probably have a few <laughs> a few bricks that belong to us somewhere. Exactly. In, do in you like drinking a uh, Do you like a, a go hit in a pub occasionally, a beer or two? Or two, maybe a bit more. <laughs> exactly okay good <laughs> so you are yeah definitely we're scottish uh, I'm, I'm scottish deep down inside yeah no, I, I enjoy a drink i like to socialize you know, the thing is that you know i'm very fortunate that, that you know my business is is uh, a lot of my time is spent on alphonse and uh, i'm working in the office in the evening and i'm coming to the bar in the, uh, sorry i'm working in the office and let me say that again so i'm working in the office <laughs> during the day in the <laughs> evening I'm, I'm at the bar counter enjoying Listening to the experiences of all the all the guys that have had fishing that day, been fishing that day. Oh wow, yeah. So what's that? I mean, it's pretty much everybody, like you said, is coming there for fishing or just the natural beauty. Is that kind of? It's all revolves around that. Is the off? And how long have you had your? When did you first create your uh, the company, the Alphonse, the actual uh, the hotel and that whole thing? So um, we started uh, Alphonse Fishing Company in September 2012, um, mm-hmm. and uh, we uh, purchased uh, um, Alphonse in August 2013. Um, and that was basically, you know, that period there was when we started uh, Alphonse Fishing Company. And then uh, we only launched the le- the leisure brand or the ecotourism brand called Blue Safari. That was done in um, July 2018. Um, uh, in 2018, more recent, yeah. But you know, you know, obviously, you know, coming from a fly fishing background, but but obviously learning a lot about the ecology and the, and, and the wonderful nature out there. Um, you know, I wanted to try and put the two together. So around the world, there's obviously like a stigma towards fly fishing or fishing in a sense that they they don't think that it's conservation orientated. So, yeah. so we we trying to spread the word in the sense that you know, and everybody needs to explain that you know what we're doing is sustainable. We listen to the science. We've got a lot of different projects that are happening at any one time, um, and when the scientists or the conservationists say to us, "Hey, listen, this you can't do this," which has never happened because we we don't put as uh, too much pressure on the destination, we are really responsible. But if they had to come to us and say, "Look, guys, look, you, you need to close close season in Giant Valley. Don't go into these kind of areas," we'll do it tomorrow. We'll do it tomorrow. So. Over the years, what we've tried to do is create this, you know, you know, inform people and just sort of teach people in the sense that, you know, fly fishing is great because we, it's a good uh, revenue earner, but you can also protect the areas because we need the areas to be pristine. So all the all the funds which we raise and the conservation uh, um, um, auctions that we go to and the trips we donate all go to foundations which we've created in the Seychelles, which – are specific to each atoll and protect and and monitor these these destinations, but they don't because you know that 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 funding is coming from fly fishing, from guests that are coming fly fishing. Always always was guests that were coming from fly fishing and has still been guests that are coming from fly fishing, 
but it doesn't only protect the marine environment. It protects the terrestrial environment as well. So in the past, we were doing more terrestrial work than marine work, but the revenue is being earned from marine-orientated activities. So now what we've, we've got to a stage now where you know, people that come to the come to the island, there isn't a stigma that oh, fly fishing or fishing is bad. Everywhere on the bar, you know, the divers, the conservationists, the eco people coming on ecotourism, or just the leisure orientated guests, all get on really well. You know, it's like an amazing experience when you come to Alphonse Bar. Everyone's there. We have a bell ringer every single evening where we, we acknowledge great catches of the day, but also great achievements from the divers. Or uh, you know, uh, some divers uh, saw a, a hammerhead shark. We we acknowledge that. And generally, what it is 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 we the, the person or the activity a guy in charge of the activities that day or the head guide would come up and we'd start the start the bell ringer and we'd call the fisherman up and talk about the trigger fish he caught or the giant trevally he caught or the diver that went out and saw a saw a um, hammer shark or um the the guests that went snorkeling with sailfish or the guests that uh, helped uh, um hatching turtles or the guests that did a beach cleanup and all that kind of stuff and it's all acknowledged with a, a ring of the bell but what you also get is is a is shot, either a sh- either a shot of alcohol for the ones that want alcohol, or for <laughs> the kids kids or whatever they get a shot of fruit juice, and it's all a celebratory kind of evening, and that sort of breaks the ice for the evening. And everyone look has has a, has a point of contact uh, to be able to speak to everybody anybody else. You know, it's like a starting point of discussion. Yeah. Um, and our, our our destinations we built them on on the sense of trying to trying to framework them around uh, ski resorts where. You'll, in the evening, you'll see your instructor in the bar, or you'll see, you know, you know, those kind of things. So we encourage our staff, our dive, dive masters, our conservationists, our guides, you know, all to come to the bar in the evening to socialize with the guests and talk about the day. And that way you get people encouraged to do all sorts of other experiences. Um, and that's why, that's, a, that's why all our destinations are so great and everyone loves them and we have an 80% return rate, rate. You know, people might not come every year, but they'll come, you know, every two or three years kind of thing. Today's episode is sponsored by Rare Gear, not only making telescoping fly rods, but rethinking the whole fly fishing idea of traveling better, lighter, and faster. This rod is a blend of traditional and Tenkara styles to make what you might call the perfect all-around fly rod. It travels well, fits in almost any bag, and because the rod packs within itself, you don't have to worry about damaging it. Rare Gear also has folding nets, compact wading boots, and the telescoping rod puts the perfect package together where you always have it on at all times. Rare Gear is definitely innovating uh, in fly fishing to help hikers, bikers, multi-sport enthusiasts, and everybody out there who wants a new adventure to get on the water faster. You can head over to raregear.com right now to check it out and uh, take a look at this rod. You gotta, if nothing else, click over there and take a look at what this thing looks like. A rod without guides is definitely unique. That's Rare Gear, R-E-Y-R, gear.com. And, and that's it. You've, you've created this experience. Obviously, this is, and it, these trips, you know, definitely, especially for somebody coming across from, say, the U.S., you know, you got to do a lot of traveling to get there. What does that look like for your clients? Does it look like, is it a good chunk of uh, more U.S. folks now than there used to be, or how's that look? Yeah, we've always been really strong in the U.S. Where, where it's about forty percent of our guests come from the U.S. You know, um, and most of those guests are all fly fishing orientated. Um, you know, a lot of our other guests all all coming, you know, from the U.K. and Europe and those kind of places. Um, there are a lot of fly fishermen, but a lot of them are also leisure oriented because it's a lot easier for them to 
to go to, you know, Seychelles, you know, um, then American, they had to come to Seychelles to do sort of leisure oriented stuff. So, um, but we do get a lot of Americans coming out for, to see, do the conservation stuff and to, to see what, we, what we've got out at these destinations because they're obviously so pristine and wild. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's hopefully going to, you know, the American market's going to obviously grow for us. Um, um, we find that we find the American market very easy because, you know, uh, generally they're well-traveled. So, um, and yeah. they, they do appreciate when they come to a destination like ours, they do appreciate what's there because they've seen so many other destinations which right. don't have it. So, yeah. so, you know, Americans are generally, generally great travelers. Um, yeah, it's, um, we're learning all the time. So, yeah. you know, we hope yeah, that yeah. you hope that you know, the Americans keep coming. You know, obviously it is a long way to get out there, but once they're there, it's, uh, you know, they, they're in heaven. But yeah, we do encourage, yeah, we do encourage you know uh, guests that are that are coming out for a week's life sheet to come out for a little bit longer. You know, if you had to go to any of our destinations other than Alphonse, for, for instance, like a stove, Farqua, Cosmolito, um, um, Poiv, uh, St. Joe's, the Amarantes, any of those destinations, they all those flights come via Alphonse. So you can you can fly into Alphonse and spend two or three days before. And rest and do a bit of fly fishing and get your eye in and so forth, and then move on for your your weekly package at uh, um, at one of the other destinations, or just come for a two week or ten day trip uh, to Alphonse. So that's the yeah. beauty about it is that it's not you know a lot of fishing packages around the world you're sort of limited by your time frame. It's either going to be a week or two weeks, whereas it doesn't with us. It can be it can be three days. It can be up to you know as long as you want. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that that is really cool. So, and it sounds like yeah, a lot of the people that are coming there are people that have been you know traveling around, so that they know it's not their first saltwater trip necessarily. They've been around, and this is like a you know this is a obviously a bucket list trip for a lot of people. But then once then once they get there, they come back as well. It sounds like yeah, that, it's, it's everyone. <laughs> now, it's, it's a funny thing where everyone says the trip of a lifetime every year. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And uh, so what, I'm curious on the, you mentioned the conservation because that is a key part of it. And one of the struggles I would imagine you hear about some of these things, right, especially out in the ocean where you guys are doing a great job protecting the species, but then you've got some other group or industry or something that's right, that's hammering it. Is Do you see that as, as a problem out there or do you guys feel like you're, you're able to really protect that whole, all the uh, atolls out there? Yeah, so I mean, it's sad to say, but conventional angling is is a a downer for for the flats fishing. You know, if you have a, a someone who rocks up or a group of guys in a yacht and they casting conventional plugs across the surface uh, of the flats, you know, they're going to entice every single giant valley in the area for the, for a mile. You know, and yeah. you know, you know, one one yacht fishing an atoll for a week will catch as many GT as, as we catch in you know three months. You know, so oh, wow. so you 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 can't have you can't have that kind of fishing. You know, these places have to be extreme pristine to have giant trevally coming onto the flats. So, you know, if, you, if you're having boats rock up and doing conventional fishing in shallow water, it's going to ruin it for everybody. So we've managed to get a, a little bit more protection with regards to that. So, you know, the RDC, um, which is a government organization which manages all the outer atolls, they, you know, they obviously help us, you know, trying to, um, you know, not allow boats to come to these kind of places, you know, inside the lagoons and so forth. So, you know, all the conventional fishing is done away from the reef. It's all done in the deep water. It's all done for pelagics. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's you know, so the, gotcha. the giant, valley, giant valley are protected. Um, yeah. Whereas our destinations, obviously, closer to, to uh, Mahe where conventional guys go out there and, 
there's obviously way less giant trevally there because there's too much con- conventional fishing. But we're lucky because our, our destinations are, you know, it's expensive to get them because, you know, you're obviously going to have to fly for a decent hour. Um, and it's a little bit further out than what your general uh, yacht can can do and get out there. So oh, that offers a lot, of, a lot of protection. But the beauty is now as well is that the Marine Protected Areas Act is now being put in place in uh, uh, in the Seychelles where there's, there's marine protected areas where it, it's – uh, it disallows those that kind of fishing and, and offers a lot more protection for the fly for the the fishery on a more sustainable basis, which is fly fishing orientated with rod limits. With rod limits, and, and what would be you mentioned some foundation? What what would be one foundation where people could kind of check out and maybe support them or check them out more? Or the, the, some of the folks doing the conservation work? Yeah, so I mean, you can go on a website, you know, Alphonse Fishing Company, um, or Blue Safari Seychelles, or Alphonse Island. And you'll see that there's some conservation work there. Um, the conservation uh, work that we're doing, uh, the, the foundations, the, 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 the names are the same as the, the atoll. So, for instance, for Alphonse uh, Island and St. Francois and Bijoutier, which is the Alphonse Group, we have the Alphonse Foundation. Um, for uh, um, Cosmolido and Estove, we have the Cosmolido and Estove Foundation. Um, and those, those, are the, those are the foundations that, that uh, um, we, we uh, sort of generate the, the, the income and the donations, and then what we do is we have a, a, a tri-party uh, agreement with the Island Conservation Society, um, and they do all our, our conservation work. We give them the funds, we uh, allocate what what kind of conservation work we would like to happen, and then they carry it out for us. They do it. That sounds like a good uh, good partnership. Right on. What is the uh, so uh, time wise? If if somebody you know this is obviously a big uh, a big trip. If somebody was planning something, what what would be a good time? Uh, you know, and how far out do you have to plan th- this sort of trip? When would when should we be coming? If you're talking permit or uh, permit and or GTS? Yeah. So I mean, our, our best time of year weather wise starts around uh, um, October um, and ends uh, now in in May. Um, the rest of the time, the southeast wind generally picks up a little bit and starts blowing. We hibernate all our destinations except for Alphonse during from from May all the way until uh, um, um, August, um, and then you know, the, the destinations vary in when we open them up um, again for the uh, for the season. Um, Alphonse Island, you can fish all year round, um, so but we just limit the rods. So we like to create a, a buffer period where we have. Uh, you know the flats being nice and rested, so that you know when when uh, um, the season comes about, you know it, the, the fish have been rested and you know it's like like walking onto a, a flat that's never been fished before kind of thing. But the funny enough is that people believe that the off season rejuvenates the fishery, but it doesn't really. You know, so you can start the beginning of the season and you expect to be like fish everywhere, cost for cost kind of thing. You still have to catch them, um, and and uh, you know generally the fishing. The peaks in the fishing is according to the weather, according to the tides. Um, there's various different scenarios that come into play. You know, if you think, okay, well, oh, okay, I'm going to go to an atoll and no one's ever fished before and I'm going to catch bucket loads. It doesn't happen. Yeah. It doesn't happen like no. that. You still, you've still got to get the stars to align. You've still got to be there when, when the tides are right and when the weather's right and when the, you know, the, the fish are in, in, in the right areas and so forth. So um, even though the Seychelles is a guarantee, you're going to catch fish. You know, you're going to catch a lot of them. Um, you know, some weeks are obviously better than others. Yeah. Yeah, no, I hear you. It sounds like, well, like a lot of these places with fishing, you know, it, it's like we said earlier, it's the fishing is obviously amazing, but 
you know, it's the whole everything. It's the experience, you know, somebody traveling there, just being out in that area, seeing that the creatures and animals would be sweet. What What's the, so give me a rough on cost-wise, just so somebody knows. If they wanted to book, say they're going to book a, a week trip to, you know, uh, Cosmolita or whatever for, say, Permit or GTs, what does that look like over there? Yeah, so, I mean, our, our product ranges from about $10,000 all the way up to about fifteen or $16,000, depending on the destination. So generally, the, the, the price point um, increases according to the distance of the flight. So the flights are, are operated by the government, um, oh, independent right. contractor, and uh, that's how they, they sort of uh, yep. um, limit. Uh, so if you came over from the U.S., yeah, if you came over to the U.S., you would fly in to where, – where do you fly in? Like where is the international – where do you fly in there? To Mahe Island, um, which is the main island. It's a big island. Um, and then from there, it's uh, – you know, we have uh, Beechcraft 1900, which can seat 16 people, a nice pressurized plane that you know can fly above the weather. And, uh, you know, our closest destination is – with the landing strip is Alphonse. Um, and then uh, from there, it's, it's an hour. Uh, sorry, two elephants in an hour. Then all the other destinations are an hour more. Um, so Cosmolita and Stones, yeah, so two-hour flying. Um, Farquhar is another half an hour, 45 minutes. So Farquhar in total is about an hour, hour 45, whereas um, Cosmolita and a stove are, are about two hours, 15 minutes. But all our flights come via Alphonse. So we'll always fly the plane, an hour flight, land in Alphonse, depending on what time of day it is. You'll either have a snack or you'll, you'll have a toilet break and so forth. So a lot of people will jump off at Alphonse and some people will jump on at Alphonse and then we move on to the to the next next destination, land there. Gotcha. So that's an hour. So that's amazing. Yeah, it gives us a perspective if you're talking one, two hours air flight. I mean, this is a huge, gigantic area. What What is the... I mean, this must be. I mean, mileage-wise, do you have any idea how many miles it is between this whole this whole area that you guys work in? Yeah, so so between Mahe and and Alphonse is about two hundred miles, um, a little bit more than two hundred miles. Then between between Alphonse and uh, um, uh, uh, Farqua is about another two hundred miles there and thereabouts, um, and. Yeah, Cosmolita is a little bit further, probably like that, 250 miles. So, and a stove, so a stove and Cosmolita are very close together. So it's a, it's a long way out. You know, you're closer to Madagascar than you are to to Seychelles, to Mahe, um, and that's why these destinations are so pristine because they're so far away, so difficult to get to, and so expensive to get to. Um, it's just the fact that we are able to do back-to-back trips and and supplement the the trips with leisure. And we're able to get the get the costing to where it is. Yeah, that's it. No, and it's totally. I mean, for this sort of trip, I mean, price isn't really the issue here. You know what I mean? It's like, like you said, once a once a lifetime trip. You know, every year people find the money. You know, that's that's the great thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, also you got to you got to understand is that you know, um, for instance, let me let me give you an explanation. So, so uh, Cosmolito is um, five days by barge. So if you want to send one one cocaine out on, on, on a boat, it'll take five days to get to Cosmolita by sea. Um, you know, and we, and we have to use massive boats, which we can fit 10 or 12 uh, containers on because we obviously are having to take a large amount of uh, um, provisions out. Now, we do four barges out to Cosmolita in a season, in, in seven months. So just to keep the camp running, you know, obviously – 
you know, you've got to generate uh, um, electricity. You, you've got to make water. You've got to uh, obviously have all your dry dry supplies. You've got to. There's so many different things. You've got to move boats around, spares. You know, all those kind of kind of things. So it's it's a it's a massive, massive uh, sort of um, yeah, moving organization, logistic wise. So, and, and and the Seychelles isn't cheap. Um, so no. it, it's it's just logistically it's difficult. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a that's a cool. And and what about a, another random one here? I mean, is I remember a while back you were hearing a lot about these, uh, you know, the pirates out there and things like that. Is that still is that something you've ever had any interactions with, or is that an issue out in that part of the world still? Yeah, look, piracy is not non-existent in the Seychelles waters. Um, I, I don't even know if it's is any more of it in the Gulf of Aden, which is near Somalia. I'm not sure if it's ongoing at all. Um, it was it was basically. Sorted it out. I think the only place that there's now piracy or a little bit of piracy is in in uh, Indonesia or uh, on the on the east coast uh, on the west coast of Africa, up uh, closer to like uh, um, uh, um, below Morocco, those places. You know, um, gotcha. But I, there's 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 no piracy in the Seychelles. Um, I was unfortunately part of a, you know the business which I started uh, uh, many many years ago, which I sold out of um, in 2012. Um, we actually did all the pioneering of the art, art islands and destinations, and we, um, my that business came to abrupt halt when we actually had one of our boats taken by pirates. So, oh wow, you know, my, my you were vision, on it? No, I was not on it. We didn't have no. the guests on board either. The guests had been dropped off five hours before, but they took the boat and they took the crew of eight, um, and they took them and they had the crew for 79, 79 days, um, wow. in Somalia, yeah. We had the crew for 79 days in Somalia and they, they eventually burnt the ship and uh, they closed our business. But then, uh, you know, it, it it was kind of, you know, it was a terrible thing to happen, but it also set a lot of other things in play where, you know, liverboards aren't the best things for destinations because you can't have a permanent pres- presence there. You know, you, you, especially in Africa, you know, East Coast of Africa, boats move around. People can get to these atolls. People can fish them and take turtles and stuff without anybody even knowing. So you've got to have a presence at the atolls and all year presence. So you can, you can um, sort of um, protect these destinations. So by having a lodge that you operate for, call it seven months of the year, um, and then you have nobody there except your skeleton crew and your rangers and your conservationists, and you're able to protect these destinations – so for me, for me, it was a it was a migration after having the piracy and 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 seeing you know, the effect of liverboards and seeing the f- the effect of commercial fishing and you know my decision was that I you know I had to try and explain to the government that you know you have to have low impact destinations lodges with high income and the ability to protect these destinations show people and teach them what these destinations are about and how unique they are. Yeah. And by doing that, they're going to they're going to contribute, and you're going to be able to protect them, and 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 protect them for longevity through through a sustainable use, and drive all the all the commercial fishing away, or illegal fishing, or legal turtle uh, catching, right. sharking, filling, all that kind of stuff. And through that, all yep. these destinations have been able to be be protected, and they they rejuvenated. They're getting better all the time. You know, destinations, uh, the fish are there. You know, they, you know, the fish are improving. For instance, like the, you know, the bonefish populations at Saint-Francois are more healthy than they've ever been. Uh, that's Alphonse and Saint-Francois. More healthy than they've ever been. The permit fishery is better than it's ever been. The GD population is as good as it's ever been. So wow. it's, uh, you know, it's an amazing, it's an amazing sort of, uh, um, uh-huh. uh, how can I say, like, involvement that things are, you know, yeah. 
how things have evolved. Exactly. And you've been right in the middle. So you've been in the middle of this thing the whole time. I mean, other than, you know, you've built this thing along with, I mean, who else is out there? You know, I, I know you hear a lot about uh, Yaku, right? Because he, he's out there a lot. Are there, I mean, what does your, your crew look like, your, your community of, of guides? Is this a um, people local or what's that look like? Yeah, so we try and encourage as many uh, local guides as possible. They're very good. We have some incredibly good uh, um, local guides. Some of the guides have been guiding with us for like 16, 17 years. Um, so, yeah, we've got a really good uh, local content of guides and they're really good guys. Um, but we also, you know, we obviously have uh, expats that come in and, and do guiding stints. Um, it's generally hard to keep people on the outer islands. So it's hard to keep you know, people for long periods of time. So you do get the guide teams moving around. Um, oh, yeah. But what we, we try and do is we try and encourage our guys to stay by moving them from destination to destination. And then they keep, mm-hmm. you know, keep enthusiastic about their destination. So they'll spend sort of five weeks at uh, uh, St. Francois and Alphonse. Then they'll spend like three, four weeks in the stove and five weeks at Cosmo. Then a couple of weeks at, Co- at, 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 at Farquhar. And then from Farquhar, maybe do like two or three trips in the Liverboard to the Amarantes. So it, it kind of keeps them keeps them fresh and excited. Um, yeah, yeah. Yaku and Yaku, um, he actually cut his teeth uh, with us in the early days. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, a great story. I mean, I'd been guiding um, in Russia, and I came back for a break, and I met Yaku as a youngster um, at one of our sort of coastal uh, um, uh, towns, a place called Kins Beach, and uh, met him out of the blue and. and uh, he asked me, look, how do I get into fly fishing? So I said to him, look, I mean, the most important thing is obviously get something behind your name with regards to university. And when you've done that, shoot over to uh, um, the UK, try and get a job at, at Follows of Pall Mall as, in a fly shop, learn as much as you can about all the different destinations. Uh, and then when you've done that for two years, give me a call and I'll get you a guiding stint. Nice. And almost almost the day he, uh, uh, he called me and said, Keith, I've done all of that. Um, I want to come guide. So his first day of guiding was uh, was he was thrown on the flats. We were at Cosmolito. He was pointed in the right direction. He was given a radio, and he said, "And I said, there's your there's your three three uh, clients for the day, and make it happen." You know, so Yaku's <laughs> yeah, Yaku's obviously a talented talented guy. You know, he, he's got he's got a lot of sense between his two eyes. You know, and and uh, you know he's got he's got the ability to figure things out and. Uh, he evolved and he spent many, many years with us guiding in the Seychelles. Yeah, and he's he's a very close friend of mine, and you know we we do a lot of fishing together still. And uh, you know he comes out to Seychelles for many weeks every year and he hosts uh-huh. groups and so forth. So yeah, he's still he's still a part. Although he doesn't work for work for us, he's he's still an integral part of our of our family. That's right. Yeah, he actually he, he ended up uh you know like grew up I think near well I'm not sure how close he is to you but but now lives in actually the US down in Texas I think is where he moved last I heard, right? Yeah, he's guiding out of, out in Texas, yeah. Yeah, which is which is cool. No, that, that's really awesome. I think that uh yeah, I think it sounds like you guys have an amazing program, just like, you know, you hear the name out there, obviously. I'm glad we had a chance to uh, shed some light on it today. Um, so what now that it's May, what's that look like now the next, uh, you know, six months or whatever that is this season where you're not going to be uh, fishing as much? What what, what, do you, what takes up your time now? Yeah, so now we're we obviously planning for next season, so it's getting all the provisions sorted out, rebuilding boat skiffs, uh, engines, um, refurbishing accommodation, um, yeah, making sure that the the team's going away and getting well rested as well. So doing a little, little bit of a 
rotation of the teams. Um, yeah, yeah. It's a. Uh, um, do you get a break in there? Do you like take it out? I mean, you're all, you're on vacation all the time because you live out there. But do you ever go somewhere to kind of get a vacation, your own vacation? Yeah, I do. Um, so this year, uh, I'm very fortunate that in, this, in the fact that I'm, I'm going with a very good friend of mine out to um, to the Alta River in Norway, which is mm. um, it's a very prestigious experience. You know, many people have dreamt about it for like I have for years uh, and haven't haven't been able to get get the opportunity to go there. It's you can't just rock up and go and fish, and you can't really even buy a rod to go and fish. Right so for Atlantic salmon. Like, for Atlantic salmon, big Atlantic salmon, the biggest in the world. Yeah, the biggest in the uh, world. It's like there's a saying that's it's dead man's shoes. So there's basically uh, there's five weeks where you, there's a syndicate of five weeks where people have purchased the syndicate rods. They pay an astronomical amount of money to be able to go and fish during that period, and then for the rest of that period, there's a lottery. So you have to enter into the lottery job to try and win a day's oh, wow. fishing fishing on the altar. So if if you if you haven't been lucky enough to get an invite of someone that's got a, a syndicate rod, uh, which you share, not, not one person doesn't fish a rod. It's always a shared rod. So two people take turns in fishing that fishing that rod. Um, it's it's very difficult to, to to go and fish the destination. So it's been a lifetime dream for me, um, obviously, because I, I I did guide on the Panoy River for four years, where I was the head oh, yeah. guide um, uh, when I was doing back to back seasons with with Seychelles. So, uh, dating salmon fishing is really, really, truly ingrained in me. Um, I love, you know, even it. not even catching a fish. I love, you know, walking the river, riverbed and casting a spay rod yeah. um, all day long. And you know, it's uh, it really is, really is. It's so different to what I do for work. You know, yeah. When I'm walking totally in the different. flats in the Seychelles and I'm holding a rod, I, I don't find that I fish much. You know, I, I enjoy it more taking my son out and watching him fish. You know. For instance, the last three or four times I've been on the flats, I, you know, I haven't even taken a rod with me. I've just been with my son and watch him catching uh, and my wife, watching them catch bonefish and whatever comes their way. You know? So um, for <laughs> me, you know, it's always, there's always that sense that it's still work. You almost yeah. a sense that you've caught enough fish in the Seychelles, you kind of feel guilty and now it's time to pass right. the baton or to rather just enjoy the experience of walking on the flats. So, you know, salmon fishing is so different. You know, salmon or steelhead fishing is so different that yeah. you get on the river and you feel, you know, knock and unwind and enjoy it. Yeah, that is great. What, what is that on the uh, – and I'm just curious because you mentioned the, the, the number before. So you, those rods where people are buying, what, what does that cost? What's that price tag look like for those the, the high-end, like, uh, you know, rods? I've got no idea. It was priceless. Uh, you know, the guys yeah, – You can't even get you, it. You literally you can't, can't get even it. get it. The guys hold on to them until until it gets passed on and someone wants to sell it. Oh, right, right. Yeah, you so, can't even get it. So it's a lottery. It's literally just a lottery system for mo- for anybody, and that, and even that's still a lottery. Yeah. So I mean, you know, those rods are obviously syndicated and um, they passed on to generations, or they sold on and they snapped up immediately. Um, oh, yeah. And and then and then all the other you know, because basically those rods will be fishing during the night time because it's twenty four hours of daylight. And it's better fishing in the evenings or the nights because uh, you know the fish bite better. The daytime, the daytime period is 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 generally offered to the lotteries, and so everyone you put money into the lottery and it's a it's a lottery and uh, someone wins a, is lucky enough to win a day's fishing on on the altar and gotcha. obviously divided by the amount of lottery tickets that are bought. 
Um, I've bought lottery, lottery tickets and I've never won. So <laughs> that's right. That's a problem with the lottery. Is that the lot? Well, I guess depending on your lottery, but but lottery is usually not a good investment, right? Usually you don't have a good shot at winning. I guess it depends on the odds. But um, well, uh, this has been good, Keith. I appreciate uh, you know definitely digging into this today. We'll send everybody out to uh, alphonsefishingco.com if they want to connect and, and maybe uh, find out more about getting a trip with you. Um, yeah, I appreciate you taking the time today and, uh, and shedding some light on all this. Oh, thank you. Yeah, if anyone wants uh, to send me any questions or to send me a hi um, on my Instagram, I'm Keith Rosiness Fly Fishing. Um, you can just send me a message there or send me an email on Keith at uh, alphonsefishingco.com. Um, yeah, I'll happy to answer any questions, even if it's just about tackle. Um, I'm happy to chat. I enjoy chatting with everybody. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll see you on the, on, on the water somewhere. Uh, if it's not in the Seychelles, maybe uh, on a river somewhere. But yeah, tight lines and, and good luck out there. So there it is. Wetflyswing.com slash 335. 335. We'll get you all the links, the show notes, and uh, whatever uh, Dom threw in there, a little bonus. Check it out. Quick listener shout out before we get out of here. Tim Martin out of Humboldt County uh, sent me an email uh, recently. He just found the show actually back in May, and he's been binging the content and loving it. Uh, Just want to say thanks for uh, all the support, Tim. I appreciate you for taking a moment to say thanks. If you want to connect with me and potentially get a shout out here, you can send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com. It's probably the easiest way, or you can connect with me on social, and I will definitely get to your email uh, personally as I get to it. I would love to hear from you and, and try to put together an episode that makes sense for you. One last one before we get out here, Togan's Trivia Night. Uh, head over to wetflyswing.com slash trivia to enter your email and, uh, and get entered in to get some fly tying swag from Togan's. They're sending these out. We're, we're doing these on a regular basis. So it's a chance to uh, get that free swag. And we're going to be announcing um, the next winner on an upcoming snippet episode. So stay tuned for that. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. I hope you have a good afternoon, good evening, or good morning, wherever you're at. And looking forward to catching up with you online or on the water. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.